Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 718. Um... I have a bunch of shows coming up on the Fun Comfortable Tour that run through November. Uh, Toronto is kind of soon. Got a Texas run. New York. <laughs> That's for JFL 42, the, uh, the Just for Laughs. Uh the festival branches into oh, cool. Toronto. So that's over at funcomfortabletour.com. What do you got on the Nerds Community Cork Board? Well, first, I want to say that today is the last scripted episode of Thrilling Adventure Hour. What? It's coming to an end today. It's the last what? one. What? So, That's so sad. Yeah, I know. I had to find out of this right now. <laughs> I told you about this. No. I what? I'm so oh, sad right. right now. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they'll continue. They're going to do a couple, like, wrap-up episodes. But today's the last scripted one. And then they do have a couple of live shows coming up. Uh, one at LA Podfest, where we also have a bunch of other podcasts yeah. from the networks. If you go to LAPodfest.com, you can find that. And they also have their comic book series. They have their comic, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you can you can find them there still, um, and and the entire library will always live there if you want to go back and listen to it. I hope it ends in a kill spree. Just, they really take it dark for like that last ten. One minutes, character, last one character just hits all the different oh, serials, yeah. and it just keeps going through, and it's real. It's, uh, that'd be that'd be a really great. Knowing way to the bands, they'll do something amazing. <laughs> they have done something amazing. Also, Nerdist is launching a collection on Inkshares, which is a star-up, crowd-funded book publisher. The collection will include books published under the Nerdist name targeted at Nerdist audience. Rad. And as part of the launch, Inkshares is running a contest to find the next great science fiction slash fantasy writer from the Nerdist community. The top five projects determined by reader pre-orders will be published even if they haven't hit their pre-order goal. goal. Yeah. And you need to submit them by September 30th. Yeah, this was the thing that uh, we've been talking to this company called Inkshares for a while and so just c- kind of thinking it's it's it, again it's sort of like community corkboard where we thought oh we have this platform and maybe we, can, maybe we can foster uh, people who want to write a novel and let the community vote and you know we wanted to make sure that it was a a deal that was advantageous to the creators so it wasn't just like let's try to make money off our audience so you know we we made sure that the deal is very is is better, much better than the industry standard oh, for, right for people. And so, you know, it just, uh, just because there's smart, creative people in our audience and they should, uh, they should have the opportunity to get their stuff out into the world. So I hope we can help. Everybody and, who's submitted a rad novel on the corkboard. And you can find out that. where to submit by going to the Nerdist and uh, just searching Inkshares. Yeah, just search Inkshares or Inkshares Nerdist Google and yeah. it'll like, we'll just bring us together. Uh, this episode is Robert Rodriguez who is promoting the Dust from Dust Till Dawn TV series season two 
which is on his television network, which El Ray, El Ray, El Ray Network, August twenty fifth at nine p.m. He's my hero. He's fucking and rad. He was. I had my pulse was like racing after this episode. <laughs> I was like, after you left, I was just like giddy dancing. My God, what a what an inspiration for like just go out and make your thing. If you're listening to this and you haven't read his book Rebel Without a Crew, go buy it right now. It's maybe one of the most inspiring books I've ever read. You know, you talk. He's, I've, like I'll talk to a lot of people who sort of like maverick style break out and make their thing and not the, and and it is hard work i'm not trying to under i'm not trying to undercut how much hard work it is but just the idea of yeah he just decided to make it he just saw oh i should do this and or keeps I doing it like yeah. has stayed independent and is still doing stuff by his own rules runs his own company has his own people built a channel to build more independent voices out there like yeah such an amazing person he's he's a super good dude and uh and and really nice and uh and so uh we give him we give him all of our all of the nerdest blessings in the world <laughs> to robert rodriguez uh true chris signed him afterwards just just like a mafia john yeah that's right <laughs> you can't murder him now no no here's the nurse podcast number <laughs> seven leave it nurse podcast number 718 with robert rodriguez awesome. katie roll the thing <laughs> now entering nerdist.com Welcome. This is Kyle, Katie. Hi. You can sit here. Here's some water. And and this the world's creepily tiniest candy. They're freaky those <laughs> yeah, those things. So They're potent though. I'm a giant. Like you just I feel like I These <laughs> are the strangest li- tiny little They're powerful candies. Punch. Yep. We're at a we're at a fancy hotel, so yeah, these are like it. they gotta go real small, otherwise it's, they feel like can get rich people pack a big flavor into a tiny package. <laughs> this is like some sort of. I feel like I feel like I'm. Not, like, I shouldn't. And it has to be folded. <laughs> I don't want this. I want large candy. It's snuff candy. You put one in each nostril, and uh, all right, good. We're all set. We're recording. You can say whatever you want. There's no content restrictions. Sure. How does this sound, Katie? Is this good? Should we beat on the table a lot? Is this good? Is this good? Should I do it up here? How about this? Live with this little. You guys like stomp, right? Come on. Um, this is. I feel like this has been. Um, I was just talking to everyone else in the room who made this happen. This is sort of between our two schedules. This has been like a year in the making for this. This is like a big. Like I'm almost. I almost feel weird. Like once this moment's over, where where do we go from here? What do do I have to live for now? I mean, (laughs) that elusive interview has now happened. So now what? We got to go find a bigger shark. Maybe we just shouldn't do it. Maybe we just stop right here and then stop and postpone it. This is like a ninety-second podcast. (laughs) Robert came on, but I've been so excited to talk to you because you are the probably one of the brightest, shiniest examples of someone who I think for our audience who are basically a lot of creators, you know, mm-hmm. of someone who just went out and started making your own thing and then continued to do so. And when you felt like you didn't want to compromise, you continued to make your own things your own way. And now 
do you have a network and you're still making movies and it just it's a good first of all these hands these eyes on your hands are pretty amazing yeah i've been doing i've been doing faces <laughs> hand puppets you know my niece and nephew were in town just now and in the room and i thought Okay, I don't have any of my usual tricks. With me. Well, I got a pen. Kind of I'm sorry, Robert. I was talking to the puppet. So <laughs> when did you? Hello, hello. Is there? A... I drew it on there with a pen and started te- uh, playing with them. Do the hands have different voices? Hello. They like that. Yeah, they eat. They spit. They they this enthralled them for two hours. They and did any part of your entrepreneurial brain go? This is a fucking show. I got to do this. I have. This. I, I come up with a lot of things like that that you can't really sell because it's you're using <laughs> you're using a pen. <laughs> and you're, but many times I've come up with an idea where somebody's go. That's a great. You should sell that. I go, well, there's nothing to sell because it's just, to this is an idea you give somebody. They can make it themselves. The whole point is it doesn't cost any money. You have a network like, though. Can't right. you just go on and go? Hey, this is my fucking network. I am Robert. Marie. Because I'm just going to do hand puppets for 40 minutes, and you and this is what's going to be on the network. Oh, now. you could you could do that. I think that's actually a pretty good idea. <laughs> I think about it. I just spent two hours. I should have filmed it. It was quite entertaining. You, I think I think it'd be really fun if you could if you could turn El Rey into you have your sort of like you have your high quality scripted programming and you've got reality shows and then you could just. Then the rest of it you could just treat like your own public access channel where you just come in and do any kind of weird shit that you feel like. For those who can't see, I, I drew googly eyes on my hand with a pen and uh, made a hand puppet impromptu. And it's quite hypnotizing, actually. I mean, this one, I, I feel like the left hand looks like a lot of fun. The right hand this looks like kind of a dick. One, yeah, okay, I was right one. then. Because yeah, yeah. the kids need to know right away, okay, one's bad and one's good. And I keep trying, trying to say, no, I'm the good one. <laughs> 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 go, no, it's not. I can tell by his eyes. Like, you can't judge a book by its cover. Oh, yeah, this is very smart. You're teaching the kids that the world is out to screw you over. Yeah, you can't trust teach anybody. Them. You're basically telling them, be careful who you talk to. <laughs> so, uh, when just the stuff, the, the the few things that the some things that I do know about you, and I, I, if you could just expand a little bit more, but I read something that I thought was really funny, which is that when you started out, or when you st- when you were in school, you uh, shot, you were supposed to shoot video of your high school football oh. team, and <laughs> the first gig I got fired from, and that uh, I mean, if you would rather tell the story, or I can, I went to a really small high school. It was about a hundred and seventy people in the whole school, and uh, I, you all had to play sports, and I was big, and I just didn't like sports because they needed you on the team, and um, and I said, well, I can videotape the games for you. You need someone to tape the games, so they put me up on a cherry picker, and I was there, you know, filming the games, but I didn't know you're supposed to just film the plays. <laughs> You know, just kept. You're supposed to just lock the camera off. Basically, I was following the ball being kicked. I was following the quarterback running, the guy catching it and getting tackled. And I cut it together, put music on it, and show it. And the players would go crazy, and the coaches said, "We can't see what they're doing, so we can't point out." <laughs> you know, this isn't hero shots. This is supposed to be so we can study the moves and the plays. So I couldn't do that. I couldn't just sit there and just film basically nothing. And so they got rid of me, and they got somebody who just would just do what he's told. Boring. But it, um, but it really showed that I, I really liked to entertain. I really liked to put things together. And when I started making a bunch of home movies in high school, that I was able to turn in instead of term papers. And um, are you serious? The movies haven't really changed. <laughs> yeah, the business is exactly still the same. Pretty much the same. Most yeah. of the business is like, no, just go up and shoot the, just go up and shoot this. Just but, be boring. Uh, but what's cool is I shot them on video, which was a really early days. I mean, I didn't know anybody else who was making movies on home video like that, cutting it together and putting it with sound effects and music. And when you had a, a video camera like that, it was automatic exposure, had automatic sound, so you didn't need a crew. You know, you would it would do everything for you. 
Um, so you were just telling your story. So I went to film school, and they're teaching you, okay, you have to have a separate sound guy, and you have to have a separate DP. And I'm like, that didn't make any sense <laughs> in today's world. And I said, why don't I just go take a film camera and do what I was doing on video, but just do the extra couple of steps of having a light meter and doing the sound myself. I don't see why you can't just do it the same way with film. And I went and made El Mariachi on film using techniques of video. And um, that's the first thing I wanted to do was go tell everybody once it got made how it was done, wrote a book on it. And the most gratifying thing has been, you know, for film students and people to continually come up to me and, and say that they went and started their own thing because I went and told them how it was done. And it was a really – I would have wanted to hear that, you know, as a student. So that it's continued on into now having a network where we discover new talent and give people a shot – is just uh, the most gratifying thing of all that I've been doing. I mean, it's it would be it's nice because I'm sure a lot of people think, oh, making a movie is is a part of this large machine that you have to go in. and maybe at film school, not all film schools, but I'm sure most film schools are like, this is how you're supposed to make a movie, as opposed to maybe saying this is a conventional way to make a movie, right. but you can. But I feel like now now they would no, but back then would. it was really ahead of the curve. I mean, no one had ever heard of that, so they, they're certainly going to teach people something that they can then go get a job. Were you editing in camera? How were you? Put, how were you adding the music and the sound effects and everything? I was connecting two VCRs. You were doing the two together, VCRs thing, and then yeah. it had a tape recorder with a splitter <laughs> that I would on the fly add as I made a dub. So yeah, it was two, it was a two track system. Did you have a preferred soundtrack at that time? What uh, Always like John Carpenter or – you know what I use a lot? Uh, Under Fire, that uh -huh. Jerry Goldsmith score. Um, there, there were several scores that I would use. And then sometimes I would use uh, a soundtrack from another movie like that I took from a videotape. So it already had sound effects and music together. So I wouldn't have to – so I could have you know gunfights and fistfights and music along with it. So you knew pretty young what it was that you wanted to do, or did you... No, I didn't think, I, didn't I, didn't, I didn't think that was an option. I mean, I certainly no one had ever come out of Texas as a filmmaker. It was just a hobby. I really didn't see that as a career, uh, even a possibility. It was just not something you even thought, oh, I'm going to go be a filmmaker. No one... You'd have to move to L.A. And then people would see my films and say, are you going to move to Los Angeles? And I would be like, no, nah, I guess I'm not going to be a filmmaker. I, I want to <laughs> stay here in Texas. And you know, maybe I'll do little commercials on the side and keep my cartoon strip going and do a variety of things. But I certainly don't want to go knock on doors. And I don't know anybody in the business. So when I made Mariachi out of my apartment and sold it, I, I wanted to go tell everybody that it was possible because I would have wanted to know that. I don't know how many other people are out there who thought – the same thing. Oh, I, I, I'm very creative. I have a lot of, I think, talent for this sort of thing. But, you know, I'm, I don't live in the right city and I don't know the right people. So I, I shouldn't even dream about that. So that's really what I was up against was just telling people about it. And you can't, I mean, it, every, every time you make something, particularly every time you make something on the scale of making a film, the learning curve is so steep. Because I've watched people, now that I've been around long enough, I've watched people, like, because I did... Rob Zombie's first movie. Right. And watching that, the learning curve from what he learned just making that into yeah. the next one, into the next one, into the next one. It's like there's no better experience than just, yeah, just, doing, just, it. just doing it and not being afraid to, you know, make mistakes and learn from and people them. People know that now, but, you know, this is 25 years ago. It was a very new thing. I mean, no one had even heard, heard of such a thing ever happening. I had never heard of such a thing happening. So when the studios first started, uh, Courting and then flying me up to talk about this movie I had made. I thought, I've never heard of anybody getting into the business language, but they must do this all the time. And then 
you never hear from these people again. So <laughs> when they put me up in a hotel, I'd be like taking the bathrobe and then like any kind of souvenir. <laughs> the I go, okay, this is going to probably all go away next week. There's no way that somebody actually gets in the business this way. And then I did. It was pretty wild. And how did you ensure that it was like, how did you, how did you stay on track? And what did you learn the first couple movies? Well, the first one, I mean, the first movie I made, El Mariachi, I, I didn't intend for anybody to see it. I mean, that's why I made it so cheap. I made it as a practice film. Because I had made a bunch of short films that it were winning awards, but I had never practiced making a feature. And I knew why they were winning awards. I'd made like 30 or 40 of them. So, I mean, you got better as you did them. But I thought, oh, no, somebody's going to go to a film festival, see one of my shorts, and go, hey, we should give this guy a feature. And I've never told a feature. I need to get some secret training on a feature the way I did on my short films, kind of like where no one will ever see him. Mm-hmm. So I was going to hide it on Spanish video and just make three El Mariachi movies. <laughs> Guaranteeing no one would ever watch it. Because any money to go to, watch, to rent an action film in the Spanish market, the last movie you're going to rent is a movie called The Guitar Player. <laughs> you know, that does not promise an evening of action and thrills. But, it's, but, but, it's but like, I, I, that was a whole joke that I had. Yeah. I thought, well, if somebody happens to just be desperate enough to get it, they'll be surprised that it's actually got action. But it was really just to... to practice doing all the different jobs and i was very adamant about doing every job myself so that i would learn directing and camera and sound and for this reason if if someone saw the movies after i collected them together like the best scenes and thought everything sucks but the editing is pretty good i can go oh i'm an editor i'll get a job as an editor or i'll get a job as a cinematographer you know it would be a, it would be a multi multi-card you know multiple cards i could hand out for that and then the first one got picked up and i think the reason was because I mean, I, when they said they wanted it, first they just saw it as an example of work and hired me to come up with a new movie. But I didn't have any new movies. I, I hadn't been thinking of anything. I thought I was at least three pictures away before I would have to come up with an original idea. So it really caught me off guard. I was like 22 years old. And they said, what movie would you like to make? What stories you've been thinking of? I, going, I don't know. This all happened so fast. Well, you liked El Mariachi. Why don't we remake that You know, with Antonio Banderas and just remake it like Despera- called Desperado? And that's what they were going to do. But then they decided, well, you know what? The ending might be a downer where the girl dies. So we're going to screen your original one to an audience and see if they don't like the, if they don't like the ending. Well, maybe you should change the ending when you remake it. And they screened it, and it did. people liked it the way it was. And they took it. They said, we're going to take this to Telluride. And I was like, no, no, don't take that, <laughs> don't take that one. This is my practice. I, I swear I can do much better. Had I, I Give me $2,000, and I'll go reshoot half of it. If I just know people are going to see it, I would have done many things different. I would have spent a lot more for sure. I would have done more than one take. But it was made in such an innocent, naive vacuum where I really didn't think anyone would see it. That's the only way it's possible. No one would ever make a movie that they think people will never see, or they hope that no one will ever see. Right? Had I known anyone was going to see it, I would have. I would have spent more. I would have borrowed more. I would have because that would have been my shot. And they said, "No, you don't understand. It's a very, it's a very special thing. You don't know what you got." And they took it to Telluride, Toronto. It won Sundance, and that's when I realized, you know, because I threw it away, because I didn't wasn't precious about it. It was almost I, I did something that only I really wanted to see, mm-hmm. and that's really what I learned from that, which is to be true to yourself. Don't try and think about what the critics are going to want, or what the audience is going to want, or what's going to get the award. You, you can't mastermind that. You know, you almost have to go. What's what's pure? What's fun to me? And that's kind of what I built my career on. <laughs> After that, I said, oh, you mean I can just keep doing this? Okay, I'll do that. So, that's, but that's the most important thing, and I, and I think. Uh, if people try to trend chase or they try to chase critics or they try to chase audiences, then it's like you can tell, first of all, when they're trying to do that. And also, 
who are they who are they going after and they're not going to really be saying anything if they're trying to appease so it's it's hard but i think that philosophy is difficult in the construct of traditional media totally because it's very you know, it's very difficult for an executive to just hear someone go, well, let me just be passionate about my thing yeah. and that'll work. And they'll go, well, no, you got to, you know, yeah, we need a business to here. demographics and we need to know who That's why uh, I also chose to just make movies, to continue movies at a lower budget, you know, putting the money on the screen in a way that people didn't believe that you made it for that cost, like yeah. you do in Mariachi. Because then you could take more chances because they're not spending very much money. When you spend more, then that's when they have more control. Uh, rightly, they want their money back. You have to cast this person. You have to end it a certain way. You have to do such and such. Where here, if you keep the budget low and you just make it about a big idea, you could have the creative freedom that you want. And if the movie is successful, it's a big success. Cause it costs right. it. And if it's not successful, it's still a success because it makes <laughs> us money somehow. So it's kind of a win-win situation. And everyone kind of goes in with like, now we can just be creative and have fun. Yeah, when you can take the Kai, when you write on the it's squeaking the table, uh, I'm going to cut your hands off. <laughs> this table, and then like you're going to no, but then it's going to be louder because you're going to be trying to write with your nubs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you get to keep your hands. Woo. Tread lightly, um, but uh, it 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 just seems like um, uh, when you take money out of the equation, when you can take money, I think that's a really important question to ask yourself. Like, is, am I doing what I want to be doing? Because if you go, well, if you take the money out, are you still happy? Or if you take the money out, is it still the same thing? And I think that's such a great, that's such a great way to determine whether or not you're being true to something or not. Right. But it's also, you know, it's, it's really hard to know. Like if you ask a filmmaker, okay, this is your shot. What do you need? They'll ask for more than they need. Right. Because I would have done the same. I'm sure if someone had said, okay, this movie that you're making, this El Mariachi, it's actually going to go to the Sundance Film Festival and it's going to be released by a studio. You'd be like, okay, I'm going to go borrow. I'm gonna, who do I have to, <laughs> what do I have to go steal in order to put the money on the screen to make this thing work? You know, you would, it's a big temptation because you want to, you're not going to, you're not going to bet just on your imagination and a camera. Well, were you able to adapt when when you started doing Desperado? Were you able? Well, to- Desperado, I thought, okay, now here's my chance to really show what I can do with you know a, a bigger budget. And it wasn't a very expensive. It was the, the lowest budget movie they made that year. It was probably like a three or four million dollars. But to you, budget. that was a but treasure trove, and it was shot in the same town, so that went really far. And um, but like you know, you're trying to make a John Woo type film, and you know he has 150 to 200 days. You know, you you we only had 33, Jeez. so we had to shoot just very fast and very. I mean, I had to operate. I had to learn and operate the steady cam on the same shoot um, while I was filming it was uh, it was a blast I mean it was a blast to get to be able to do that and um, and you were really singing for your supper I remember I, I had to learn a lot I remember the studio I told the studio I wanted to edit the movie and they go no you can't edit the movie we've never had a director edit his own movie it's against the rules and, well you bought mariachi and I edited that all right, you can edit it, but you got to edit in L.A. so we can watch you because we don't think you know what you're doing because we saw the footage and you didn't shoot enough. T- your takes are too short. You shoot shot little pieces. It's not going to cut together. And I was like, I've never seen real footage before. You know, you're supposed to shoot full takes of everything. But I was always shooting in my head. I was kind of cutting in camera. So if Antonio walks into the bar in a wide shot, I would cut right after that because I'm not going to. I'm not going to use the rest of the scene in a wide. Right. But usually they would cover it because an editor does makes those decisions. But I am the editor. So I was cutting it. When they would see the footage, it would be, what is this? Like the camera's suddenly on the ground and he's ejecting some clips from his gun into the camera. And then it cuts. It's like he doesn't even play the scene out. I mean it was completely wrong in the Hollywood sense. 
but I cut the scene, opening scene, and they came over and they watched it. And they go, okay, you know what you're doing. <laughs> it's the best scene in the movie. The opening scene is the best scene in well, the movie. Well, you were in-brain editing before you even... In-brain edit, because that's how I learned. You yeah. know, I had to shoot a mariachi like that, almost one-to-one ratio. So um, it really... Uh, was a cool way to kind of get introduced into the into the industry in a way by taking on these precedents that was able to last the rest of your career. It's all about precedent. If I wanted to now and I'd never done before, edit and DP and do the score, they wouldn't let you because you've been doing that since the beginning. It's just how, they accept that that's just how you work. Right. So it's it's been the most fun you could possibly have as a filmmaker in a legitimate business is the, this career because of that very first movie. I can only be so thankful that that was the first one because it set a lot of precedence for me. And for a while, I'm sure you were like, it's the kid who made the $7,000 movie. That's all it was. And I would get so many you know, job offers because they'd be like, so many of their productions would be so over budget or they'd be really expensive. Get that guy who makes it for nothing. And they would bring me projects. But I was really, you know, one thing that really set me on this other path was I, I learned a lot from George Lucas, who I you know, got to be friends with early on. He said, it's a good thing you're in Austin. Stay in Austin. Don't come to L.A. I'm in Swine Marin County. When you live outside the box, you'll think outside the box. You'll just stumble upon innovations if you just stay out of the soup. And uh, and you did. You just kind of did your own thing. And, and when I was tempted by a studio with a script for a movie that was a big property, yet the script needed a lot of work because it would be early days on that project, um, you would go, wow, George wanted to make – Flash Gordon, he couldn't get the rights, so he went and wrote Star Wars instead. I'm going to do that. I'm going to not go take that assignment where I won't own it. I'll be a director for hire. It means I'm expendable. Or I can go spend that time, instead of making their script work, go make an original thing work, and I own it. It's one of the few filmmakers who's really, because I put myself in that situation, created three or four franchises. You know, It's really uh, not done. But because you constantly are not relying on their product, you end up coming up with stuff. You have to. Yeah. So the Desperado series, the Spy Kid series, the Machete series, I didn't write and create Sin City, but that's like another, that's like a fourth of stuff that you're doing very independently. That's a really great place to be because you know if everything falls apart, you can still, with original ideas, because you've trained yourself to come up with original IP, that that puts you in a, in a very powerful position. So I always try to uh, coach people when they say they want to get into the business. It's like, right, so few people who create their own material. So many people want to be a director, but they don't think of themselves as a writer. I was the same way when I gave my agent my first copy of El Mariachi. He said, I can send this to the studio right now and get you work as a writer-director. I thought, writer-director? I never thought of myself as a writer. I guess I wrote that script. It wasn't really written officially. I kind of wrote it all out on a notepad. Right. But I, yeah, I guess I, I guess I'm a writer director. You don't think of yourself as that. Yeah. You have to kind of take ownership of that and go, yeah, I'm someone who should create original ideas. I mean, at, at every at every point, it's just different ways to tell a story and express a story. Yeah. And as long as you know, I think as long as you have a strong point of view on what the story is. Then you're probably going to be in pretty good. Sh- I think it's. I think it can be risky to just get paired with an editor that you don't really know, because you just cross your fingers like, well, I hope he gets what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And if he doesn't, then this is not. This is going to turn out. Yeah. And a lot of times you don't even know what you're trying to do. You kind of find it on the process. So um, it's it's there's a real organic quality to it when you when you get in there and you go, okay, this is what I was shooting. Oh, this is what it's becoming. 
And uh, I remember Sally Minky, you know, Quentin's editor, the late Sally Minky, great editor. She came and said, I really loved your editing in Desperado. It's a bunch of stuff you're not supposed to do, but it works. <laughs> it really works. You're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to jump cut into this performance like that. It's, you're not supposed to do that, but it really worked. I mean, so you really just kind of went on instinct and you tried things and, and, it, and, it, and it can, if it worked, it, it was fine. I mean, there was this the, – the, it, it seemed like, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s was this period where uh, the kind of fraternity of independent filmmakers started emerging, of these guys who kind of just went out and made cool stuff coming out of the 80s where everything felt very, like, manufactured by Filmco, you know? And so it really was the dawn of this new era in a new way. And it was kind of like... um, and I mean this as a compliment. It was sort of like the, like the spirit of the internet, really before the internet. Like, yeah, yeah we're just going to go out and make a think a thing that we and then and this is going to be and and surprise, it's fresh because it's untainted by the machine. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a very empowering time, and this was still before video. I mean, it really it was kind of because video that I learned those tricks. But it, we shot those things on film. When I did the mariachi, sure enough, that Nick uh, when I won Sundance, I, I told him. You're going to get a lot more entries next year, you know, when I got my accepted the audience award. Because when people find out this is the one that won, the $7,000 movie made with no money, no crew, everyone's going to pick up a camera and go out and make a movie because they're going to realize it's possible. And uh, Kevin Smith heard that because my whole thing was how I told people how I did it before each screening um, because I knew they would wonder and I wanted them to know so that they could get excited and go do it too. Um, I said, I took stock in what I had. I didn't write into a script stuff that I would have to go get or rent or buy. I looked at everything I had around me and wrote that in. So my cousin, you know, uh, Carlos is the main actor's cousin, had a bus line. Okay, we're going to have a bus and an action sequence. He owns a ranch. Okay, the bad guy's going to live at the ranch. His brother has a bar. There's going to be a shootout at the bar. He's got a pit bull. Okay, that's going in. So people think we have an animal wrangler. Oh, he had a turtle. Turtle's in there, too. Gives us production value right away. And I wrote the script around, you know, stuff that we had. Kevin Smith heard that. And his movie was in Sundance the next year. And he said, huh, I work at a convenience store. I wonder if I shouldn't make a movie. <laughs> and he shot his movie there. Clerks it's, there. So it's kind of it funny. You're really sort of looking fun. at your life like a toy box. Like, it is. What's in though, the box? It really is. You go, oh my God, everything around me. We could make a movie right now with everybody in this room. And what would it be? Okay, it'd be this guy who gets his fingers chopped off. Kyle. <laughs> Just like cut to the stump, spitting blood. And, and is then- there something that really is really something, uh, it's an incredible phenomenon, this uh, sort of, Freedom of limitations. When you're limited, you're almost more free. You know, I did this, one of my favorite movies I did with Quentin was called Four Rooms. They, they said, okay, we're going to have four directors. No one knows what each other's writing, but it has to take place on New Year's Eve. You have to use the bellhop, and it all has to take place in one room. With that limitation, you're almost free to do anything. Mm-hmm. But it's almost um, like it's a controlled freedom because if, if anything is an option, if you could just make a movie on anything, well, it's almost like there's too many options and you wouldn't even know where to begin. It's just like going to the, the Google homepage and going like, oh, I could know about anything in the world right now. Oh, I don't know what, what do I, I want. want. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, so it really, it really limits that, that freedom of limitation is, is what I try to build into this, to my movies now. I, I make sure I always have not enough time, not enough money and try and, you know, always kind of, you know, the vision is always exceeding the grasp. Do you think... Uh, do you think that like two hundred and fifty million dollar movies are good for film, or are, are you neutral about it, or is it a bad thing? Like like I mean, massive, I massive. Bad. I mean, I, I I enjoy watching all kinds of movies, and there's many movies that I'll watch, and I go, yeah, I would rather only watch this. I, I wouldn't want to make it myself because it's just a, a beast at that point. 
I, I kind of like where I live and breathe, which is in that medium range. It's kind of like just beyond a TV movie, but under a feature. So it's fast, but yet it still has a little more production value and yet a bigger idea than just like a television movie, but it's still shot pretty quickly. So it's economical. And it, that seems to just everyone, the actors, everyone just kind of really loves that pace and the feel of that. Anything bigger than that, I, you know, I might get into just for the experience of it. Cause I can bring that experience into the smaller stuff. But, um, yeah, the other way, it, I think it would feel like you're working, and I've never worked a day in my life. <laughs> it's always been fun. Somebody today just asked, hey, you write, you direct, yeah, you do the score, you do so much work. And I go, well, you're using the wrong word. I never use that word. I've never worked. I've never worked. Say that again and use the word play. You write, you direct, you edit, and you do that. so much play. How do you do it? It's like, how can you not? I mean, you're so excited all the time. You're always creating. And now we have a television network that you have to fill up 24-7. So you have to come up with shows, and you will. You task yourself with that limitation. I got to come up with something that's an hour. It doesn't cost too much. It's create. Oh, I know. I'll go talk to other directors. Yeah. You know, you just come up with stuff. Was uh, was Dust Till Dawn the? Was that one of the most challenging movies because of all the makeup effects and everything, or was that not? Did it just feel like oh, this is just another thing? But now there's vampires. Uh, no, that was after Desperado. So that was, that was challenging because, yeah, there was effects and it was um, – we had to shoot it because there was a, a strike that was going on. We had to, it was weird. We had to shoot the second half first and then shoot the first half. So it was completely out of sequence. I mean really bizarre. And, uh, and yeah, it was right when digital was starting to come in. So we really couldn't have a lot of digital effects in it because we just didn't have the budget for it. So we're battling trying to put those two things together. But I really love a lot of the practical stuff that we did in that. And it was fun. And it was like a, that was one of my longer shoots. That was a 50-day shoot. Oh, wow. Because we had to stay in the bar for like five weeks before we could go out to the strike was over. Blew up that poor Asian kid. It was fun. It was fun. It was so fun. <laughs> We'd shoot him up. We should watch the commentary for that. The commentary that Quentin and I do for that. It starts off normally. Just just skip. Start at the beginning where we're talking and then skip to that scene. By the second half, we're like screaming at a fever pitch. He's going, he's being eaten alive. He's being eaten alive. It's so funny. It's just we're so excited by the, by the second half. Um but it was uh, it was great. I mean, I, I I hate I love shooting nights. I hate getting up early in the morning. I remember one time I was like I had to get up early. We shot in Los Angeles. I had to drive downtown. I get to work. Okay, what are we doing today? Well, we're pulling off Tom Savini's head. It's going to roll over. She's going to put her foot in it. And she's going to shoot an arrow in the eye, crossbow in the eye. It's like really? Oh, that's a, this ain't so bad. If you got to get up early in the morning, you might as well be for something like this. I remember thinking, I got the best job in the world. Yeah. What am I griping about getting up early? So you never worried about. I mean, it sounds like you've set up a nice thing where you never really have to worry about it. Like, oh, you know, you, you know that if you, you can just continue to make movies and it doesn't sort of like what you said, like, well, if I keep the budgets around here, then it's always going to be fine. Yeah, from a business point of view, you want to do it that way. But I've always been into so many different things. If it wasn't movies, it would be, you know, drawing or painting or video games or cartooning or I would do something in the creative world. So you just... Uh, focus on what it is that you love which is just being creative it's kind of why i make the actors when they come to sit paint i teach them how to paint so they can kind of get out of their head and think and work a different creative muscle because creativity is 90 percent of anything that you do 10 percent of it is the technical aspect like technically how you apply paint or play music you know the best musicians in the world don't know how to read and write music sometimes it's really learning how to be creative and you can kind of jump from job to job and do them pretty well if you're really 
you know, make that your thing and just being creative and not worrying about what you don't know, about what you do know and what you do feel. And I, it's amazing what they produce. And they go back on the set and they can solve any creative problem on the set because that's easy compared to what they were just doing, mixing paint. <laughs> and it's a, it's a great environment. People really love the environment that we have down there that anything is possible, you know, Willy Wonka land of a film studio. And uh, now that the network's there, it just feels like, you know, sky's the limit as far as your creativity goes. It doesn't have to cost very much at all. But isn't it, it's just like launching a cable network and having to, I mean, I know you said, well, you just got to fill it with stuff. But that is a, it really is a tremendous undertaking to fill 24 hours of programming. It's hard just to make like a half hour show. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I didn't know, it wasn't until the first six or seven months that I I thought, okay, this is is really going to be hard, especially the first year because... We've never done it before. And now it's just how you live your life. I mean, you're constantly thinking about all these things and and you manage it and it's and it's really fun. And you got other like minded people who come in and get you empowered to be able to make decisions. And we have a blast. I mean, it's just such a great creative outlet. Why do you think there's not more why do you think there are not more Latino voices in in entertainment now when I feel like it, it's the Latino culture is such a is such a part of certainly here such a part of our culture and and, and growing in numbers year over it. Well, that's kind of why I made the network. I had a theory because I would I would when I made the book Rebel that I crew I thought okay now anybody can make a film they can just read this book and then go make a movie and there'll be more Hispanic voices too. I didn't see a lot you know I thought oh well they'll come they'll come they'll start making it. And it's been twenty twenty two twenty three years and then paranormal activities you know Blair Witch top projects actually one of the guys. At Sanchez is, 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 is Hispanic. Um, but, you know, you didn't see a lot of people following that. And then I realized later um, why that is. And it's, I mean, when I made El Mariachi, I never thought it would go to Columbia Pictures. If you had told me that, I wouldn't have even, I mean, I wouldn't have even gotten up if I thought it needed to go to Columbia Pictures. I would have been like, okay, they're not even going to put this out. Spanish language Columbia movie? Pictures, maybe. Columbia, maybe, but Columbia not Columbia. Pictures. The reason I got excited about it was because I knew there was a Spanish, to, straight to Spanish video market that would buy it. And I could probably sell it for twice of what I made it. That got me excited. I said, oh, there's a place I can go. For sure, they need this kind of stuff. And that's why I went and made it. I didn't get up going... Maybe I could take this to a studio. That would never happen. But when people see my success, you know, that I had with those movies, the problem is yourself. You know, you go to write, hey, let me go do that. You know, three or four of us put together 50,000, 80,000, let's go make our own movie. Um, You start writing in your own voice. Hispanic, male. (laughs) It's like, uh uh-oh. Wait, I'm I'm writing my own personality into this. Who's going to put this out? What two or three distributors can I take this to that are going to have a bidding war for this? They're going to label it a niche film. They're not going to put it out. And you don't really get up because there's really no place to go. It's hard to get up to go make a movie if you really don't think there's any place where you could take it. Mm -hmm. That's why I wanted to create El Rey because I thought if people know this place exists and we're doing this whole thing with the People's Network where people can come participate and be part of it um, and send us material and, and create their own things. Like if you go, okay, if I make this in my voice, in my own personality, I know I could take it to El Rey. They would want it there, and they'll let me own it. You know, that changes the conversation. It gives them a place to go. So you're actually so you have that agreement with your creators that you let them own their yeah, stuff. Yeah, I would let them own their stuff. That's fucking great. Yeah. Because that's what, that's what it's got to be about. You want to open the – you want to inspire people to come and make material. And be a part of the network. And this year, I mean, we've, you know, when you look at 
representation on television in prime time in front of and behind the camera, even though Hispanics are 17% of the country, it's about two or 3% in front of and behind the camera right. on prime time. On El Rey, it's 60 to 70% <laughs> in one year. So it's not that it's impossible, it's just no one's really doing it. And we've been able to do that by just creating that standard, you know, making that the mandate. It seems strange that uh, even even from a number standpoint that more studios don't go, maybe we should... Well, you also want it to be authentic and that if it comes from a very authentic place, you don't want to just, okay, let's just, because, you know, I wouldn't want, you know, you wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want to go to like to a writer who's writing his life story and say, oh, you know what? You got to make that character now. Right. Hispanic, because that's the thing now. <laughs> right. You know, you want more authentic voices who are just creating those stories. That's the, that's why I made Spy Kids that way. I mean, when I made Spy Kids, it was based on my family. And the studio even asked, why are you making them Hispanic? We don't understand. Why don't you just make them American? So, well, they are American. They're American like I grew up. It's based on my family. Yeah, but I want to confuse people. Won't they think it's a Hispanic film or a Spanish film or a Latin film? And I said, no, I don't think so. But no one had ever done it before. So they're asking a good question. And I said, but why? We don't understand why you would do that. And I had to think of an argument. I goes, okay, it's like this. You don't have to be British to watch James Bond. <laughs> By making them that specific, it's more universal. They went, oh, okay. They just wanted to know how. And then it became very successful. But it's like, wow, to think if you have to defend yourself that much, um, it just shows that it had never been done. So you really wanted to change that aspect of it. You ask why. It makes sense, but just it's very it's a very tentative business. You know, they want to see someone else be successful at it first so they can model themselves. Right, because there's they less don't risk. Want to, they don't want to be the first ones. And that's what it was like even on Desperado. When I went to make Desperado, they said, no, you can't use Salma Hayek. She's, she's like, why don't you use Cameron Diaz? <laughs> Jesus said, Christ. No, nothing wrong with Cameron. <laughs> no, but I'll tell you why. And I said, you, the only reason you say that is because she was just in The Mask. Right. Because she was in another movie, they say, use that one. They right. won't break somebody new. Cameron's wonderful. I mean, I love Cameron. But, I mean, that, that's only because she was in The Mask. Had she not been in The Mask, they wouldn't have been saying, oh, go get Cameron Diaz. No, of course. So they're very, they're very imitative. They're not, you know, innovative. So I just had to go, I've got to somehow cast people in this movie. That way, by the time I do Dust Till Dawn, they would have already been in Desperado. And that worked. Right. So I got Salma in and did a screen test with her and Antonio. I put Danny in everything. Until I could, he was a big enough star to make him machete. <laughs> Cheech was always in everything. I mean, I was, I was building my own star system so that I would be able to go. So by the time I do Spy Kids, oh, the star is going to be Antonio. And it's going to have Cheech. And it's going to have Danny Trick. Because they were already now, now known people because I'd put him in Desperado. I shoved him into Desperado. So you kind of have to just uh, sometimes go up against the grain and just do your own thing and create your own precedence and just start building your own industry. I mean, Danny is so fucking funny. And. What a great I don't know, what a great gift that guy is to the to the to the film industry. He's amazing. How did you how did you guys initially meet? It was for Desperado. I was looking for a guy, this character who just only spoke with knives. He just had knives and he was just deadly and he didn't speak and he, the, his knives did the talking. And I see his photo and I said, "Okay, bring this guy in." He walks in. I just handed him the knives. Said, here, go start practicing. You got the role. And he walked out. I said, that guy, that guy is the real deal. And when we got to the set, the most amazing thing happened is uh, Antonio was a big star in, in Europe and in the States. You know, people knew of the Almodovar movies. But in Mexico, nobody really knew who he was. We're in the film town filming. And uh, they see the cameras set up. The townspeople see Antonio and they see Danny. They thought Danny must be the star. They all just surrounded him because he looked like... He looked like a motherfucker. I mean, this guy was awesome. 
And I saw the, the charisma that he had and just like the star power that he had. And I went to him and I said, I got a role that I'm working on for you. It's called Machete. This was in 1994. Oh, wow. And I said, we're going to make that someday. I'm gonna, we should do it. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he kept saying, give me a line, coach. Give me a line, coach. Put me in. <laughs> I can't give you a line. You're too sweet. If you open your mouth, it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy my whole image I'm trying to create for you for this movie. So he didn't get any lines in that movie. But then Dust Till Dawn, I let him talk. And he's just, the epitome of evil. You know, then, 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 <laughs> then, Danny, <laughs> then Danny was born. But uh, I, I held it off for one whole movie. But uh, we never could get Machete. We never did Machete. We ended up making him Uncle Machete in the Spy Kids movie. So he's actually Machete in the Spy Kids world and in the outside world. It's really bizarre. It's, are, those, are those characters connected in your head? Is it like, oh, that's a different time in this guy's life? Yeah, that's when he was uh, the nice uncle. And then he had to go take care of business. Um, <laughs> and then he'd come back. But, uh, nice but even when again. we did Grindhouse, it was like, um, okay, I want to do a fake trailer. And we got to do the Machete trailer for that movie we always talked about and we never did. So let's just do that. And we did the trailer and then people would hound us for five years saying, when is that movie coming? That looks like a cool movie. A Mexican action star. A Mexican action hero. I've never seen that before. A exploitation movie. It's never been done before. You know, people. It dawned on people once they saw it that there was a. It had never been done, and it seemed so obvious. You know, it's one of those things where proof of concept is almost better. Like you say, I don't understand how come it doesn't just exist. You have to. Somebody's got to go and make it and show people. Sometimes it's so right in front of them, you don't see it until it's like materializes. Yeah. And so we went and made the movie for it after five years after because people demanded it because they could just feel that it was needed, you know, something like that. So uh, seeing what you have, being flexible, what are some mistakes that you feel like you learned from over the years where you, you thought something was going to be one way and then, oh, it's actually this way, so next time? Oh, lots. I mean, there's tons of stuff. When I do the director's chair, I talked a lot with the directors about failures, and I would do that with quotes because it's um, failures are good. You know, and Coppola goes, failure is not always durable. You know, the things they fire you for when you're young are what they give you lifetime achievements awards when you're older. <laughs> Because sometimes you're going up against the grain and it feels like it's wrong or it's not right. But maybe it's because it is good and it is right. And it sometimes takes them 10 years to figure that out. It doesn't matter. So you should just keep learning. Every, you learn more by the failures. So I, I try to tell people, when you mess up, you've got to look at it with better eyes. you got to go, I was following my instinct. I did that for a reason. Now, what is success? Big box office, not necessarily. I always I point to for, forums as a good example. When I when I signed up for forums, Quentin had said, um, "I got I want to I have this independent film we want to do where it's an anthology and we want three directors and four directors." And uh, and I, my hand went up right away because I love making short films. That's how I started. I was really good at making little short films with kids. We'd win awards all the time, and I said, "I get to do a feature version of that. I'm in." Now, should I had been more tentative? Should I have like gone and studied first before I gave that answer? Should I have gone purely on instinct, or should I have? Let a little intellect come into it. If I used my intellect, I would have done the research and seen that anthologies never work. Even when it's Scorsese and Woody Allen and Coppola, they bomb miserably. I and mean, not only do they not work, they just bomb. Or should I have just still held up my hand? I ask people that and they don't know. I said, I, I would have held up my hand and go with your instinct. Was it fun? It was fun. But beyond that, the movie bombed terribly. <laughs> it, was, it was horrible. <laughs> but is that a mistake? I don't. I'll tell you where. I don't think it is. I always say you look at whatever you think is a mistake. Through the ashes of any failure, you've got to dig around and you'll find the key of some success. Well, that's the thing is that you you have to look at it really carefully. I'll show you a couple that I had in there. But go ahead, tell me what you're. No, I was going to say that that any process that you go through is 
an experience where you can take something away. So it's like you find something like that. Yeah, you got to go find it. So that experience, even if that experience was just an education in, well, here's what not to do. Or here don't, you know, like maybe that prevented you from going down a different path where you really bombed something because you didn't learn that early on. And so I don't think, I mean, as... I feel like this comes up time and time again because I, I, you know, on the podcast I've talked to some of the most successful people in the entertainment business, and the same. There are some things that seem to ring true, which is if you embrace the process, yeah. if your idea is enjoying the process, being a part of the process, learning from the process, then you technically can't really fail unless you just give up, yeah. because you are always you 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 never go backwards. If, even if you go through like a shit swamp of an experience that has made you someone else or given you some new experience that is very possibly could save your life or your career or help you in some way that you don't even know. So right. every, every experience that you d- take on is, is valuable. So there aren't really – I mean it didn't do – it didn't agree to the box office, but who cares? I mean like you – I don't know. I, I just don't – you have a fucking network now. You're still making movies. It obviously did, it doesn't matter. You I mean, know? You're, but you don't want to be the kind of person who like questions every instinct that you have. I mean, you don't want to be going. My hand went up, but should I not do that? You know, you want to. You don't want to start tiptoeing around as an artist. You want to stay bold, and and commit to your to your to your instinct because you want to be able to hear that. And uh, so I tell people. Be prepared to, to fail, but be prepared even more to look at it with the right eyes. John Carpenter made The Thing and felt horrible for 10 years because they said it was pornography and it was terrible. It was a bad movie. And then 10 years later, oh, it's a classic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. I had 10 years of wallowing in despair. He didn't tell me before. Um, you know, so if you can always say, look, if I fail, just go, hey, maybe it's The Thing. I don't know. I'll go make my next thing. Time um, really does. Time really does help. Rob Zombie used to say that all the time. He was like, now people say House of a Thousand Corpses is a classic horror movie. When we put it out, everyone said it was a piece of shit. Exactly. Like, it's like, it's just, all the only thing that's different now is 15 years. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's the same movie that it was before, but it just, there's something about, there's something about, like, being able to hang in there. And I wish there was a word, I feel like an older, wiser culture would have a word. Or maybe, maybe I feel like there's probably a Greek <laughs> word for, instead of saying something is a failure, like, it maybe it didn't produce the result that you wanted it to, but it still yielded some kind of fruit. Yeah, but that's everything is like that. I mean, like I, I made El Mariachi to go to the Spanish video market, and it failed. I couldn't even sell it to that market because I, <laughs> I didn't put a soap star in it. The soap star we were going to put in dropped out. So I couldn't even sell it. It was a complete failure, but it failed upward because – Columbia ended up remaking it, well, actually buying it and putting it out as it was. So nothing ever goes according to plan. But you have to look through the ashes of any of those failure and really look closely and find really why your instinct sent you that way. Because sometimes the only way to get it away, the only, sometimes the only way to get across the river is by slipping on the first two or three rocks. It's the only <laughs> way to get there. There's no other way. It's like, it's like the, you know, um, the, the great test. I look at four rooms and I go, okay, um, on the set of that, I remember I cast uh, Antonio and this little Mexican boy who was the brother of the kid I was in Desperado, and I wanted it to look like a real family. And so um, the little, the best little actress I could find was this little uh, gal named Lana McKissick. She was a, you know, um, half Asian little girl, and, and I thought, okay, I got to find an Asian mom so it really looks like they're all re- interrelated. 
And then I saw them because it was set on New Year's. I had to, I dressed them all in tuxedos because it was New Year's Eve. And I was looking at Antonio and Tamlin Tomito who played the wife. And I went, wow, they look like a really cool international couple. What if they were spies? Because they look like spies. And these two little kids who can barely tie their shoes had to go save them. You know, I thought of that on the set because I was looking for an angle for a family comedy to make take place in my little short films. There's four of those movies now, Spy Kids. <laughs> um, that was one. The second thing was anthologies don't work. But I loved short films. I loved anthologies. And I wish there was a way. I was really bummed it didn't work because I, I was hoping I could just do that for some movies. Have that as an option to do anthologies and do shorter films. Because uh, that was my bread and butter growing up. And um, so I thought, I'm going to try it again. Now, why on earth would I try it again if I just saw one bomb? Well, because you figure out what to do next time. Not four directors, one director, three stories, not four stories. It was Sin City. I did Sin City because of what I learned in four rooms. Well, it sounds so like four rooms my biggest movie. It was a tremendous, if you look at it the right way. If you look at it like, oh, it didn't do good at the box office, so it's a failure. Well, that's how, that's one person's measurement of success. <laughs> For your development as an artist, though, you have to look at it differently. So you really uh, constantly have to have like this 3D perspective on anything that you do. Otherwise, you're going to either feel really bad <laughs> or you're going to be really naive. And naive is actually good. You know, Not knowing what is impossible is really the best. Going in there and just going, I think I can make this movie all by myself with no girl. I don't know. You, know. you want to be that person who constantly just keeps putting themselves out there because they don't know better. But also asking, the, asking good questions, asking the right questions. You know, is this a failure from every angle or is there right. something else? Or, or That's really important. It, and then it, if you can't think of anything, just go, well, maybe it's just a thing and I won't know for 10 years. <laughs> and in 10 years, you will have already done five other things. So it won't matter anyway. It's almost like four rooms almost sounds like an accidental pregnancy. But then the kid grew up to be like the first man on Mars. You know what I mean? Like, it, see, it, it makes sense now. <laughs> At the time, we were really freaked out about the whole thing. But then it all worked out in the end. You got to trust your instinct. Did you and Quentin have a conversation? Did you ever have like a, like a post mortem conversation about the whole thing like well we tried i don't know i mean what do you what do you want to do or is it just like you're artist you made a thing you move on to the next thing yeah we were already on the dusk and um yeah we're on the dust and that was kind of what it was too is that pulp fiction came and was such a shock and such a big surprise because remember when quentin uh, at first completed it he'd been so up on it for so long and i reminded him this in the director's chair because i have a journal and i went you know on May 3rd, 19... <laughs> you said we went to have dinner, and at 2 o'clock in the morning, I asked, hey, how did your movie come out? Because I hadn't seen it yet. And he went, uh, I don't know, man. It's still just not... It still feels like a movie Quentin would make. And I was like, what does that mean? It's like, well, it should be more like you. He said, ah, it doesn't feel like a real movie. And I, was, I felt bad that he felt bummed about it because he was so into it for so long. And um, I said, well, it's, 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 you know, trying to be the supportive friend. Well, it should be more like you and not... And uh, I didn't go to that screening uh, that you had for your director friends because I was in Austin. But I had called some of them and they said, yeah, this isn't the one for him. And uh, he goes, yeah, they didn't get it. And um, two weeks later, he won Ken. <laughs> and then it changed everything. So one of his friends even told him, I'm really going to have to sit down with you and tell you all the things that are wrong with your movie. But I'll wait till you get back from Ken. Oh, man. And then he comes back and he's like, well, I guess we don't have to have that conversation. What do I know? <laughs> I've only made one movie myself. But it shows that, it, that um, sometimes groundbreaking doesn't look like groundbreaking when you're working on it. Not by you or anyone around you. And that happened famously with George Lucas. Star Wars. Star Wars. Made Star Wars. All yeah. his friends were like, poor George. He uh, wasted his what's time. What's he going to do? With this terrible movie. And even Spielberg said, yeah, it'll probably be successful because it's so naive. Um, but you can't count on something 
being great. So you got to look at it with those eyes and go, look, hey, man, this might be terrible. It might be groundbreaking. It might be the thing. It might be, you know, four rooms for me. The thing is you got to just keep going and you got to start – And when the, time and again when I interview these directors – like I asked the Mechas, what was that like? I mean, I've had to make some pretty big decisions going into a movie like a week before shooting. But you were four weeks in shooting and you realized oh, you had to get rid of Eric Stoltz, yeah. And he said, I totally blame myself. I, I, I didn't listen to my gut. I knew that he wasn't the guy. But my intellect tried to tell me that I could make it work. And he never should rely on that. And I never did that again. Because uh, it taught you, gave you a gut check to know when I feel like that, I know that I'm going the wrong way. Um, and he said, uh, it's harder to explain a feeling because you can't say, hey, well, I think we should just get rid of this guy and get the other guy. He says, I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no thought process. You got a hunch. You're good. But, you know, that's how it is. So it's a, it's a, very, it's a, it's a really cool phenomenon, the creative process. And I, I enjoy it immensely. And the more you can jumpstart your creativity by having projects where you have to produce – you have to, whether you like it or not. That's the best situation to be in because it's very hard for people to get the right mindset. And the right mindset is counter- counterintuitive because if you want to go write a screenplay, you can't wait to be inspired to write a screenplay. You have to just start writing and it'll come to you. Action comes before inspiration. It's not the other way around. People yeah. think they have to be inspired to act and it's, it's the complete reverse. It should be fucking engraved. It should be somewhere. engraved and you can never remind yourself enough. It's, it's hard for people because it's counterintuitive. It is counterintuitive because you think like, oh, you know, I'll just get struck by lightning and then I'll start and then I'll come up it's with It's easier them. that way. I, and I, tr- I figured that out when I was a cartoonist. I used to sit there. I, I'd spend so long on a strip. It would be you'd have to labor and draw, out, draw it out. And I would be like, I want to just come home tired from school day i want to just sit in my chair and figure out this process where he can just come to me and then i can go draw it and i would sit there for hours and hours and go oh my god i only got like an hour left i could have been drawing <laughs> sit down quickly start sketching and sure enough you'd make one drawing that kind of was funny and then you do a couple of other oh, this one kind of goes with that one and then it would come together you had to battle it out it did not come inspiration first action second it started with the action of drawing then it would come out there's no shortcut and if you have a project or a network where you have to be creative. You have to put action before inspiration. You're going to just come up with shit. Yeah. Because you have no, you're doing the right thing. You're taking the steps and you're not waiting for the lightning. You make the lightning when you're there just doing the action. So if anything, I'm going to press upon people. And I tell myself this all the time because I forget to, that that's really what it is. Cause it's hard. It's hard to make yourself just get up and just start moving towards a goal. Yeah, because even if even if you spend, you know, four hours writing one day and, and you think it's, oh, I didn't really get anything, I wrote a bunch of stuff, I believe that that unsticks the machine of your brain so that tomorrow you might come in yeah, it does. and immediately have something that you wouldn't have had if you didn't spend the... But like you said, it's so easy to forget that. Time and time again, I feel like it's. I keep proving to myself... Oh, yeah, when I just sit down and write, like, I crank stuff out, and some of it I can actually, you know, a percentage of it. It doesn't, I think people think it has to be like, just don't, you don't it's not 100%. Like, you don't have to get an A plus every <laughs> yeah. time. Even if you get one idea out of 20 things, that's still one idea that can yield so much. This is my best writing advice I can give. <clears throat> it's, I always would read, because I'm not a morning guy, I was a night guy. I would, I would stay up late at night writing, writing, writing. 
and I would think I was writing great stuff and I'd wake up the next morning and go, oh my God, it's terrible. I was falling asleep. <laughs> I thought I, I was in that subconscious moment where, you know, you think that it's all good. And I would read advice from other writers and they were all morning writers. And I can't stand getting up early in the morning. They'd get up, they'd go make coffee and they go and then they sit and start writing. I go, I can't, I, I don't, I got to figure out another way. I do not want that life, but I'd have to write. And I found, I got to find something worse than writing. What's worse than, it's hard to find something worse than writing. You'll go clean your toilet before you write because it's just, you know, you know, at least you'll get somewhere, you know, Hey, in an hour, it'll be clean. Maybe it's where we're writing. You're not. Yeah. It's very, yeah. you go clean your socks. You're going to do something. You would never clean your toilet. If, if sometimes you went in to clean it, it was dirtier. As you were <laughs> exactly. To clean it. it just got worse and worse. <laughs> and it just, <laughs> just starts spewing. And it just, your eyes start watering from the, and your brain locks up and you're just like, Oh, it's never, I'm just going to have a dirty toilet. So it finally hit me. What's worse than writing getting out of bed <laughs> i'm not gonna get up go get caught i'll get distracted i'll end up doing 10 other things but i like being here in the bed so in the morning when i would wake up i call it the morning method as soon as i woke up even if it was at 10 in the morning 11 in the morning pull the laptop on while i'm still asleep because that negative voice that tells you you're, you're, you're a piece of shit and you can't do anything yeah he's still asleep so he's not gonna, <laughs> hey, he's not gonna tell you anything he's not he's not whispering in your ear at all he's, he's sound asleep he's the last one to wake up and you just start writing even if you're not inspired you just start writing just writing bullshit and you're half asleep so it's that great you know subconscious half unconscious thing and but you start as opposed to nighttime, you start getting more awake, not not less awake. So right. it actually, you start feeding off some of the ideas. And I will stay in bed for a couple of hours writing because at least I'm cozy in bed. I don't have to get up. Right. If I get up, I'm fucked. Then I'll get distracted and I'll go. Then I'll never get back to write. But I'll sit there and I'll and I'll write for an hour, sometimes two hours. Anything you write from the rest of the day, like while you're in the shower, or whatever, thinking of what you just wrote. It's gravy. You just did a shitload of work. Un, you know, no negative voice. In in just a couple of hours, you get a lot of stuff read in. That if you, anything else you do throughout the day will will be gravy. But that's what I call the morning method, and it really works. And people told me that they've well, adopted it's good, it because you're really a blank works. slate when you wake up in the morning. It's completely blank and you slate. Still, but when you're at night, you have the whole day weighing upon you. Yeah, and also. Uh, when you try to write, or at least when I try to write, maybe you get sleepier too. So it get the ideas you think they're better, but they're getting worse. But then also you can't asleep. fall asleep because you write a bunch of stuff and then you sleep and your brain's still, and you're like, <laughs> right. Oh fuck, I gotta write this down. Right, right. Oh shit. I still got it. Then, you know, at least I think, I think what it does for your confidence when you can get up and do stuff like right at the beginning of the day is that your day is already a win. You've already taken positive steps. You've already tried to do something in your day right. when you, and when you know you could have just laid there. You could have just fucked around on the internet. <laughs> you could have just, you know, like watched a, you know, watch Prices Right or something right. and zoned out. But you, but the fact, I think our brains do reward us when we make positive choices for ourselves. Yeah. We do get a little bit of endorphin. I'm like, hey, you know. And then the rest of you, as like you said, the rest of your day is gravy yeah. at that point. Yeah. Um, so you have t- so Dust Till Dawn is a series that you've made yeah. for for El Rey, and. How would I assume this is something that you probably wanted to do for a long time? Did you ever try to? Did you ever try to do it before? People had asked to do it before. Quentin and I controlled the rights to it, and we didn't let anybody make a show out of it. It's like I don't know. If somebody goes and makes a show that is involved, and do we want to get involved and work at a network or anything? No, probably not. Let's just leave it. Let's leave it alone. I'd rather not be bad product out there just to have a product. It's not worth it. Um, but once I got El Rey, it was like the perfect thing because I wanted it to be, you know, like an English language Hispanic network in some way. Hispanic, I mean, in the way that 
Desperados, Spy Kids, you know, Machete and Sin City are Hispanic. I mean, it's like for everyone. Anybody can watch this network. But I wanted uh, to have a new network called El Rey and a show no one heard of <laughs> would have been like nobody would know where to go. So I, I thought that would be a good marquee name to have. People would know Dustal Dawn. They would say, oh, Dustal Dawn, where is that again? It's on the El Rey network. You know, it would kind of drive people to see right. El Rey. And Quentin allowed me to do it. And um, and it was one idea, you know, that that original script he gave me didn't have anything about the temple or Salma's character or the snake cult. I added that in to give it more of a Mesoamerican feel and to have just more Aztec Mayan lore, even hinted at in there, that last pullback of the pyramid at right. the end was something I just added in. You know, I wanted it just to feel like there was a deeper story there um, and mythology there because there could have been. It's supposed to European vampire, something that just was more steeped in the Mexican culture. So it fit perfect with the network to have that be able to build off that whatever I was hinting at, figure out what that is. And so we retold the story of the movie in the first season in a new way to to set up for future seasons. And uh, and that was a blast. And so now we're in season two. And um, it's like a legitimate sequel. It feels like a sequel to the movie because now you're seeing the characters often different areas and doing different things and it's uh, and it's really exciting i just finished i directed two episodes the premiere episode and the season finale and it's it's badass it was really a blast to do and so i can't wait for people to check it out it comes uh, august 25th i mean it's so much i feel like uh this sort of this renaissance of cable television mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of filmmakers are drawn to because you you get so much time to tell a story and you yeah. can follow the characters and you don't have to smush it into like well we got to figure this out in nine yeah. minutes. And Quentin was even shocked because that was like his thinnest script that he's ever written, <laughs> and that it would like uh, ten episodes later in the first season we were still using elements of his script and he and uh, but it was because I wanted to use his characters because he writes the best characters in the world and his characters have never been on television, so I thought let's do Dust Till Dawn so we can use those characters and, and see more of them. It's fun to watch him at the. I moderated the Hateful Eight panel at Comic Con, and it's so fun to watch him. You're a great moderator, by the way. Oh, thank you. That's, that's really hard to do. A lot of times when people are going to moderate, I just go, you know what? I'll just moderate it myself. <laughs> Never mind. I'll do it myself. Productions, but uh, but you're terrific. I so appreciate like, that. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to do that. But I understand well. what you're saying because it sucks to rely on people. It sucks to rely on people. Well, they don't know what to prompt you with, and then it, you know those things can go with get very little information out in 45 minutes if if you don't have the right moderator. So you really tell. Oh, I really, I really appreciate that. I I did a. Uh uh, not to trash talk him at all, but I, I, I but <laughs> when I got off stage, Michael Madsen goes, uh, "Hey man, you left me hanging out there." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "You didn't ask me a question," and I'm like, "I did ask a question. You answered it." Like, because I asked <laughs> everyone in the cast got a question. Quentin got the most audience yeah. questions, of course, and Kurt Russell got the second most, but everyone else got one one question, and I and I asked him a question, but afterwards he was unhappy. He was like, oh, I you, just screw with you. You left me hanging out there. I'm like, oh, what are you, you know, because I'm Mr. Like, I want everyone to feel yeah, like, they, like, like they had a great experience. No, that's Michael. He'll throw you off like that. He's, he's awesome. He's so fun to work with. But it was fun to see Quentin talk about, it's just like seeing guys like you who obviously just care about the making of the thing and watching how deep he'll go just even talking about the film stock like it's it he really you don't you can't fake that that's just no it's that genuine. kind of authenticity that rings so true and that's what you see in all the details and, and a lot of times that authenticity is what gets shaved out by the machine because they don't know or they don't know what yeah he can never work like in a machine well you know you know he's at the point where if he did they would probably let him do whatever he he wanted but but uh yeah you needed to protect that he for him to have those kind of ideas it was it was a 
it was, I told him, you know, it's a cool, it's a great thing that TriStar didn't make Pulp Fiction. Originally he was going to make it for TriStar because I was writing Desperado for Columbia Pictures and he had an office next to me writing Pulp Fiction for TriStar. He turned it in, they passed on it. We're like, it's too weird. It's too long. Even though it's only, you know, $8 million, we'll go make the Pauly Shore movie instead. Here you go off. <laughs> and he went off to Miramax and, and did it over there. And I was like, thank God they didn't make it because they would have changed it. And you would have changed it because you didn't believe in it either. Because when you, when you first looked at it, you thought it's not a real movie. Had you made it there, they would have said it's not a real movie. And they would have made you change it. And you might have changed it. So you needed to be somewhere more protected like that to protect that voice and that originality. Because even you thought it was off from other movies because it was it was so original it wasn't like anything else does it, he even tricked himself in a weird way in a weird way like i said groundbreaking doesn't feel like it he he didn't think it was groundbreaking do you think that made him question his instincts like oh i thought this wasn't a great movie but i guess it is a great movie Maybe <laughs> i think it, it made him realize that his voice was 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 one worth protecting and um and he knew you know it was hard to follow it up you know because you know no matter what i do People are going to expect Pulp Fiction too, and it's not going to be that. So he took a left turn and was smart and did made a very mature film with Jackie Brown, which of right. course was never going to be on a level of saving though it's a great film of Pulp Fiction. But that kind of like broke the broke the ice for him. Yeah, and then he was just cranking out one badass <laughs> flick after another. So that was really cool to see. Do you do, is there a, is there a, a much of a digital component to El Rey at the moment? We're starting a whole digital. We've been working on that. It'll be launched later this year, and the People's Network will be part of that. So people will get to contribute and be part of the digital experience. That gets bumped up to network. It's I gonna got, be really neat. Good, good. I got I got a pitch for you. Cool. Here's your here's the pitch. Do it. All you need is forty nine thousand dollars. Green lit. Forty nine thousand dollars. And this isn't this isn't anything for me. I, I'm just telling you this is something I would love to see happen. Just, just for young directors. $49,000. You take seven directors that you find. They submit. You pick seven directors on the internet. And you give them each $7,000. And they go Did off. Did you read our thing? Huh? Did you read our thing? No. What, what thing? The Mariachi Project. No. Is that what you're doing? Yeah. Oh, well, I guess it was a good idea. <laughs> it is a great idea. You see? Candy? Oh, no. But go ahead. Go ahead. And what's the, what's the prize at the end? Well, let me see. You. Let me see. I want to see what you think with the great prize. What's the prize at the end? What's the prize at the end? Uh, well, the prize at the end is someone would have to get a show or you'd make their movie or... Yeah. They were going to get a remake. Like this broad, they were going to get a remade by our studio. Okay. I got another idea. For, for movie's budget. called The Guitar Player. And it's about a... <laughs> I'll take it. I, I like it already. <laughs> Wait a minute. I feel a kinship to this. I feel like such a douchebag. No, you know no, what you got to do. I literally thought you read like something that we're putting. No, together. I didn't. It was just something that I've been wanting to see. I thought that would be a cool idea to give people. And in fact, yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to do a $7,000 movie again next year. For, Are you really? It's um, the 25th anniversary of when I shot it. And but, now. But the funny thing is I'll, I'll have no crew. I'll just use friends and I've got some pretty cool friends I can put in front of the camera, but still no crew, no money. I'll have a documentary crew documenting it. They'll have more money and crew than me. Yep. <laughs> and, but it'll be a cool way to show people kind of how you can do it today, you know, and do uh, all kinds of tricks and things that were, didn't exist back then. It's amazing what you can do now. Hmm. Uh, so since you're going to do this for seven grand, then you're going to do some, you're going to be doing some guerrilla style shooting. So I'm kind of wondering if maybe I could just be in it for a second as a guy who doesn't know that you're shooting and I just see you in the public. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you shooting here? 
Do you have permits for this? You know, I'll just be that. And, and, and then somehow that'll figure into the story somehow. I'm there. Okay, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, when is Dust Till Dawn? When is season? When is it? When, what, what, what time? It starts airing on uh, El Rey the 25th of August. So 25th of August. Cool. Great. I'm so glad that we had time to Finally. actually figure this out. Um, but now... Now we're going we're to have to throw another carrot into the distance. So maybe yeah, we didn't a, have enough time to talk about everything. So we'll have to do volume a second, two. A second yeah. podcast or a second. But I, but I really I'm, – I'm so happy and, and, I, and I appreciate that it's, there is this kind of altruistic thing of you want to be able to inspire you know, young, young directors, young creators the way that you were. And, you know, and just all of your like – the ten minute series and the just talking to people about how to here's like this idea that you've been so open source about it since yeah. the beginning. Like here's how I did this. You could just go do your thing. I feel like that's what I feel like that's what really good creators do because you know it doesn't you know it doesn't create more competition. It just puts more creative juices into the everyone's going to do their own version of something. Yeah. And the car the karma that comes back. I mean, when you meet people who've gone on to do great things, it's the it's the it's their success is your success. You feel a part of that because you really said something or, or gave something away for free that they were able to take and use. Um, you feel like you're winning the damn race, you know? It feels really great to be able to see people, you know, excel because you, you give them knowledge that other people would probably want to put under lock and key. Right. Yeah. You because know? that's what I would have wanted to hear. I would have wanted to hear that this stuff was possible. And also, if you love, you know, in this case, film, and you're able to inspire someone and they go make something that you love, you, love, you as yeah. a consumer get to experience that thing as just someone who likes film. Yeah. So thanks for coming into the, uh, to this fancy hotel. Absolutely. I, don't, I want you to have all this. I'm taking all of those. Uh, and by the way, if you're niece and nephew, this is the perfect size to do the hand puppet. Hand puppet. You feed the, the hand puppet size. with these little candies. This candy is huge. Because <laughs> to him, his mouth would be enormous. Um, but uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone. Action before inspiration. The end. Taco time. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.